Welcome to another episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, the Boots on the Ground podcast for replanters by replanters with your host, Bob Bickford and Jimbo Stewart. Here in the trenches with you doing the gritty and glorious work of replanting dying churches. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital, the church website and branding partner you need to help move your church forward. All right, welcome to yet another quarantined episode of the Replant Bootcamp in the post-apocalyptic pandemic that we all find ourselves living in all across the nation and talking. I've been on more Zoom calls in the last two weeks than I care to ever do again in a lifetime. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think everybody in the world's having a webinar. I actually got an email from my dog. He wanted me to have a webinar with him about how to walk him more appropriately. So five steps to successfully walk my dog. I feel like I get 17 emails every day with a offer for a webinar or a uh, something to learn how to do something better during COVID. Absolutely. <laughs> we're all figuring it out. We're all figuring it out. But hey, I am excited about today's episode. I was listening to another podcast that we even have linked on our website as a recommended podcast you listen to, the EST podcast. It's got Josh King and Micah Freeze and Sam Rayner. So I'm always grateful to listen to that one and, and glean a lot of good information. As a church, Bob, I've told you this before, we decided 2019 and 2020 for our church, our focus would be better together and the idea of building ministry teams. Because we know as a church, we're, we average about 100, maybe a little over 100 on, on most Sundays, but we're in a very low income community and the likelihood of ever us ever having a larger staff is pretty slim. And so we knew moving forward, some of the next steps really required us having very balanced, good ministry teams. And uh, we got to have Les McEwen, uh, author of Predictable Success, on a couple of weeks ago. And he talked about even the importance there of a good balanced team. And so on the EST podcast, they talked about a book called Leveling the Church by Micah Fries and Jeremy Maxfield. I, I, heard, I heard Micah describe it as based on Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, which, was basic, which is our theme verse for 2019-2020. So I immediately ordered enough copies for me and several of our lay leaders and just said, hey, we're going to start working through this. And so I reached out and we've got Micah on today. Uh, Micah, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys, man. I'm glad to be here. It's going to be fun to talk through it. Uh, just kind of give us a summary of the book, if you would, uh, and then we'll dive into some questions. Yeah, so the book for me has been um, sort of germinating in my mind and heart for about a decade now. And it started the very first church that I pastored in Missouri, uh, which Bob knows real well, though I was on the exact opposite far side of the state. He's kind of middle on the eastern edge. I was in the far northwestern corner of the state. And uh, I pastored this little church that my father-in-law grew up in, and there were 33 people there my first Sunday, and uh, we had a budget of $35,000, and I was like 22, 23 years old, and my first senior pastor. I really, um, we had lots of awesome folks in the church. Uh, It wasn't that I just, it wasn't that I didn't have great people to serve around me. It's that I got sort of aggressively specific for how I wanted everything to be done, and I started just taking on, like I can remember at one point I was making the bulletin every week and then printing it every week, not because we didn't have somebody else who was doing it. I just didn't like the way they did it. And I thought I can do it better. 
And, uh, and I was sweeping the lobby on Sunday morning. It's not because we had other people, didn't have other people to do it. It was just that I thought I could do it better. And the crazy part was like the church really grew. I mean, we, you know, I mean, we grew to probably about the same size as your church, Jimbo. And, and, you know, we were a little over a hundred people on Sunday mornings and brought in a couple of bivocational staff members besides, you know, and I was bivo and we brought in a couple other bivo guys. And, and I think most people would have said, you guys are doing really well. And I certainly thought we were. And then after I left and really began working through just ministry philosophy, I realized that I had incredibly failed the church. I hadn't failed the church by failing to preach the gospel, hadn't failed the church by you know, being unorthodox. All of that was true. I failed the church because I hadn't done what I think the Bible says is one of the primary responsibilities of a pastor, and that is to equip the saints to do ministry together. Instead, I thought, well, I can just do it better, and so I'm just going to start taking on more and more and more on myself. Since that time, a, a mentor of mine from Kansas City introduced me to Ephesians 4, not that I hadn't read it before, but really helped me rethink through my framework for ministry built around Ephesians 4, and it led to where this book kind of came about. At the beginning of the book, we walked through just an exe- sort of an exegesis of Ephesians 4, what does the Bible say that our ministry is to look and look like, and how's it to function, and then... Uh, the middle section of the book, we walk through what are cultural barriers to push back against creating a culture of multiplication and unleashing the multitude of your church members for ministry. And then at the end of the book, we walk through four biblical models, looking at Jesus, at Timothy, at Paul, and at Moses, looking at those four concepts of how they pushed back and, and sort of counterintuitively created cultures of multiplication by you know unleashing disciples for ministry as sort of models for how we can break out of our cultural environment to see this happen in our own church. Michael, what are, what are some of the barriers that were within the younger you that caused you to do the ministry yourselves? Just kind of what, what were some of the, the mindsets or barriers that you had that resided in you? Yeah, the number one barrier was pride. And pride manifested itself and still does, uh, to be honest with you, for me, it still manifests itself in insecurity. But truthfully, it's pride, right? And so insecurity screams, I can't fail. I can't fail. I can't fail. You sort of get this manic approach to ministry. Like it's got to be exactly like I want it in every area. And I've got to do it to make sure that it gets done right. And you know, all of these things that sort of were driving in me. And as a result, uh, rather than I couldn't risk giving ministry away to, to anybody else because they had to do it exactly the way I wanted it so that we could succeed so that I could know, you know, that I was a success. We, we addressed this I, in the book with the chapter on what we call the super pastor, which we didn't come. I mean, lots of people have used that phrase in the past, but uh, we talk about how the super pastor, interestingly enough to me, Bob, I think most pastors I know sort of complain about the super pastor concept. But I think fundamentally, most pastors can't do without the super pastor concept. The way I describe it in the book, every person in, on the planet has baggage. We all have brokenness in our background, and we all self-medicate. Everybody self-medicates, right? So some of the people in your church, they self-medicate with food or alcohol or work or sex or family even. Almost always, we self-medicate with good things that we look to do what only God himself can do. And so for those of us in ministry, we self-medicate with ministry, right? It's Mary and Martha, but it's the Martha syndrome in the kitchen cooking biscuits for Jesus when we should be just sitting at his feet worshiping. Uh, We'll do the same thing. Like we will try and validate our own selves by being good at doing ministry. And so when we work really hard on that sermon and we're standing at the back of the auditorium, you know, that little old lady walks up to us, shakes us by the hand and says, Pastor Micah, nobody preaches the word to me like you do. Like deep down inside me, something goes, hey, look, you matter. You have value. 
And I can't risk giving that up. There's other barriers, but for I think that's the biggest barrier in the average pastor's heart. And when I talk to replanters or church, pa- church planters, there's an inherent level of desperation in most of them, right? Like we can't afford to fail. Like there's a lot here. And I think to some degree that can be healthy. It drives us. It gives us a lot of energy. But it can be a really dangerous nectar that can sort of feed this unhealthy idolatry of self and identity in our own hearts and lives. And ministry is a wonderful way to fuel that that idolatry. So when you talk about delegating out ministry, developing others, you make a distinction pretty early on in the book about between the familial responsibility and the vocational responsibility. Because I think sometimes when we hear delegation, maybe we even think of that guy who's uh, unapproachable, unaccessible, and he only really kind of invests in his staff uh, or higher level leadership and leaves everything else to everybody else. Talk to us about that, the difference between those two responsibilities. Uh, yeah, you're right. In the book, I do say ministry is not our vocational responsibility, and that kind of freaks people out. What do you mean? My job's to be a minister. Uh, we go to the extreme at our church that we won't allow anyone who gets a paycheck to have the title minister. We just aren't going to let them do that. And there are church that, churches that do, and I'm not trying to disparage those churches, but our argument for us is that ministry is the collective responsibility of the entire church family, And so when I say that ministry is a familial responsibility, but not a vocational responsibility, I'm not abdicating pastors from doing ministry. We're all members of the family. Every member of the family is to do ministry. And I would argue pastors and church staff ought to lead as examples in how we do ministry, right? So not only are we to do ministry, we're to be at the front lines of doing ministry, but that's not what the church should be paying us for. That's what we do because we're a part of the family. We're paid Our vocational responsibility, if you will, is to make sure that the entire body is able to do that ministry. And so uh, we tell our worship people or youth ministry or whatever the case might be, sure, you're preaching the word. Yes, you're, you're leading in music. Yes, that's right. But how are you through those means developing people to serve alongside each of us in ministry? How are we helping them identify their spiritual gifts and maximize the use of those spiritual gifts and that sort of thing? So that's really what I'm trying to get at. So to your latter question then, Jimbo, I think this works itself out in different churches based on context, right? First, I think every pastor has a responsibility to every person, but I also recognize that depending on the size of your church, you may not be able to physically sit down with every person in your church. I mean, frankly, once your church is over about 40 people, you're not going to be able to regularly sit down with every person in your church. I mean, Jimbo, you said your church runs a little over 100 on Sunday mornings. You can't regularly sit down with every person at your church. It's just not possible. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to think in terms of my global response. How do I you know, lead the whole church to be developed for ministry from, my, from the platform? And then how do I strategically equip leaders and develop developers so that they can then spider web out across the whole church so that collectively we're trying to train the entire church to serve together? But I'll tell you, one of the big costs here is the cost to our own reputation. Because if this really happens, if we level the church, and by the way, the book title, people are always asking, are you trying to blow up the church? What do you mean when you say level the church? We're trying to create a level environment in the church, right? We're not trying to destroy the church. The opposite of that. When you create a decentralized model where lots of people are involved in engaging in ministry, then you and I get a whole lot less credit. And that's tough for a lot of pastors, right? So Our church is an interesting one where I'm at right now. It's a 
pretty good sized church. And so I think one of the things that I, when I used to work for Lifeway Research, right? I worked for Ed Setzer at Lifeway Research before I came to work at the church I'm at now. And we studied, you know, the hundred fastest growing churches in America, hundred largest churches in America, that outreach, you know, those outreach magazine articles that everybody has to read when they come out. Well, that came out of our office. And one of the things I noticed is that fast growing churches generally have two things in common, dynamic pastor and a fast growing demographic. And I wish I could tell you there were more spiritual realities, but mm. I'm just telling you, we saw that over and over again. Dynamic pastor, fast-growing demographic. We're trying to flip that on its head a little bit at our church and decentralize leadership, decentralized preaching. We even use a multi-campus model. And I know that there are arguments for some folks against the multi-campus model. Our multi-campus model is kind of a hybrid of church planting and campuses. Uh, we have live preaching, live leadership teams at each local campus. It's really more of a collection of neighborhood churches is what it is. And uh, we intentionally want them to kind of be smaller. By doing that, what we're trying to do is create hopefully a metric where if one person disappears from the church, you know, if I have a heart attack and die, if, if I get coronavirus and I'm gone in a week, that, that our church doesn't stumble because the church isn't built on the dynamic, you know, the name that's on top of the masthead. In fact, hopefully, I don't think there's anywhere you're going to really find they do. There is a page on our website that says meet our pastor and you'll find a little bit out about me. But other than that, I hope there's nowhere I'm trying to think of. I can't think of anywhere in our church where sort of I'm singled out as the senior pastor. We're trying to decentralize the model as much as possible. Shift gears a little bit for us and tell us about the, the, the guy who's, you know, at the normative size church under 200, in some cases yeah. 100. The discovery and the development of those leaders are incredibly important, according to what you're yeah. sharing with us. What does, what is the guy who's in the normative size church? What kind of leader is he looking for? What are some of the characteristics of the people that he can begin to invest in? Yeah, so when we look for leaders in the church, there's often a series of sort of steps that we're looking for in terms of those who are really, so character is usually, well, usually really, <laughs> a lot of us are looking for upright, speaking English and bipedal, right? Like as long as you're breathing, <laughs> can speak the language, we'll find a way to force you into leadership positions. Okay, let's go beyond that, right? So we look for people who are really good at doing something. And I think that's, we, we look for character and effectiveness in the job. Are you really good at leading music? Can you teach students? I almost think that to some degree that's secondary, particularly all the more so in the normative size church, right? So let's say there's a hundred people on Sunday morning and you've got, I'm trying to do the math here real quick. Uh, let's see, 25 times a hundred times 52. All right. So, you know, you've got $130,000 budget. So you're running a hundred people in worship. You've got $120,000, $130,000 budget. As a senior pastor, you might be full-time. It's possible that you are bivocational. You're going to have to look more than anyone else at number one, do they have character? And number two, can they develop? And that's the thing. So for instance, we've got a guy on our staff who's, who's a worship pastor. We have a, he's a modern worship pastor, right? He's a younger guy on our staff. He's about 30 years old. And he's really good. Like as a contemporary worship leader, he's incredibly good. But that's not the reason he's so valuable to our church. I can find somebody who can play the guitar and lead music. He's really good because he's the single best developer our church has. When we're trying to plant churches or plant campuses at our church, like the one thing we have a steady supply of, I should not say this publicly because people are going to start contacting me. We have a steady oh, yeah. supply of worship leaders. Yeah. And most churches are begging for worship leaders. 
we have a steady supply of worship leaders because this guy is his name is Andrew. He's incredibly good at developing other people. And that's the single most valuable thing he does for our church. Not that he leads worship. In fact, on an average Sunday, he leads one song. He has a group of people on the platform and every one of them leads one song. So he, he, here's this guy. He's our worship pastor. We pay him full time and he's leading worship and he leads one song per week. But that's not why he's valuable. He's valuable because he creates a culture of multiplication and he develops others. So I would say to the person who's, you know, who's leading a church of 100, you'd say, well, I don't know that I've got great teachers. That's okay. You can get away with not having a great teacher or someone who's not great at music. But are they really good at bringing someone alongside them, teaching them, developing them, training them up so that they can send them out? If they can do that, accept somebody who's maybe a little less than what you want in terms of teaching or music ability, but find someone who can multiply themselves. I'm just telling you, not to mention, that's going to create an incredible stress reliever for that pastor who's going to recognize that give it a year or two, you're going to have a whole army of people around you who can serve with you, and you're not going to be sort of the guy who's dependent on uh, as, as everybody looks to just you to do everything. I think one of the great values of this book that we've talked about is in this model of giving away ministry, you know, and you've shown us this is true in your church, which is a larger church, but it's it's almost like it's it's even more, it feels more urgent in a smaller church that we have to build ministry teams. I, we're not going to be able to hire even, you know, I figure if I give somebody like 25 bucks a week, is it really called bivocational or is that? <laughs> That's a guest stipend, right? <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to financially build out great teams. And so talk about the importance of, and maybe just some practical advice for pastors of normative sized churches on building ministry teams. So here's what I would say, maybe the most important piece of practical advice. You're going to have to rethink the way you order your hours. You're going to have to rethink the way you order not just your hours, but your priorities. So there's actually a really helpful article. It's 10 or 15 years old now from Tim Keller. I can't remember the exact title. I always Google it and I just search for process managing church growth. And if you search Tim Keller process managing church growth, you'll find this great PDF. It's available on, online for free. And he talks about how the pastor's role has to shift based on the size of the church. Of course, he planted a church with like three or four people, and now it's grown to where it's really large, and he's retired from it. But he talks about how as a pastor of a small, you know, if, if your church is, say, 30 or 40 or 50 people, or then it gets to be sort of normative size. Now it's 100, 150 people, right? When you get into that, in that world, your sermon prep is going to have to be significantly smaller than if you're a pastor of a church of, say, a thousand people or 2000 people where you could go have other people who could do some of the things that you have to do. You've got to be a generalist, right? When you're at a church of a hundred people. The problem is I think often we have, particularly this is true of younger pastors who will sort of be gung ho come in and they're convinced of the importance of preaching, the priority of preaching and praise the Lord for that. But they'll think I've got to get 15 hours a week or 20 hours a week to sermon prep. And they're going to go put themselves in their office for 15, 20 hours a week. And the other 15, 20 hours a week, they're going to be fielding sort of demand calls, that sort of thing. Hey, I'm in need. I have a problem. Can you help me with that? Or doing some planning or maybe some relational stuff. I would say when you're in a normative sized church, relational, I'll be honest with you, when you're not in a normative sized church, relationship is the single biggest part of your job. How do you help manage and steward relationships across your church? And I'm just telling you, I've pastored a church of 35 to the church I'm at now, which is a lot larger, and a medium-sized church in between, 
all the churches I've pastored, relationships, number one priority. It has taken me a long time to figure that out. Behind developing relationships is developing the skill set, the ministry skill set of those who are around you. So for me, that means when I go visit the hospital, I'm not going to go by myself. I'm going to take one or two people with me. If I go to the Southern Baptist Convention, I'm not going to go by myself. I'm going to take somebody with me. Here's the thing. If you take somebody with you, if you drive in the car, taking another person with you doesn't cost any more money. Staying in a hotel room doesn't cost any more money. There's no cost to get into the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, you're going to pay a little bit extra for them to eat some food. Uh, if you buy a, an airplane ticket, maybe you're paying an extra $250. But you can, you can probably, if you make it a priority, find a way to take somebody with you when you do this. If you go preach a revival at a neighboring church, you take somebody with you. If you preach a funeral, you take somebody with you. You just stop doing things in isolation. Find a deacon. Find a 15-year-old boy who might have some call to ministry. Just don't do anything in isolation anymore. Reprioritize your priority list and redo your schedule to prioritize the time that you are with other people. And inevitably, somebody asks me, well, when I'm with these other people, what do I do? Like, what's the curriculum I'm supposed to be walking them through? I want to, I want to make this clear, and I think this is really important. Proximity matters more than plan when it comes to developing others. That's not to say you should be without a plan, but proximity trumps plan every time. That you are together is more important than what you do when you're together. So let me give you as an example. My dad is from Southwest Wisconsin. Moved away when he was 17 years old to join the Air Force, but he's a dynamite, huge Green Bay Packer fan. Lives in Middle Tennessee, now about two hours from me. I'm a massive Green Bay Packer fan. I have an adopted son who's been with me for about three, almost three and a half years, who's become a huge Green Bay Packer. Not one time have I ever sat down with my son and not one time did my dad ever sit down with me and go through a curriculum about what it means to be a fan of the Green Bay Packers. We just watched an awful lot of Packer football together on Sunday afternoons. He would buy me Packer t-shirts. And in passing, we'd have conversations about Brett Favre and Bart Starr. And now, of course, Aaron Rodgers and, and the like, right? Catechism. My dad catechized me when it came to the Green Bay Packers, but not one time did he have a plan. Never. He loved the Packers in proximity with me, and I learned to love and model the same sort of behavior that he embraced. I'm not opposed to you having a plan. It's great for you to put together a plan. That's fantastic. But I'm just telling you, proximity matters more than plan. Do what you love to do with other people, and you're going to teach them to love and do the same things you're doing. One of the things that's super helpful in the book is you guys put together a chart on page 133 that basically describes the difference between or descri describes a decision making matrix to determine is this something I do? Is this something I delegate or is this something I need to develop somebody yeah. to do? Can you can you walk yeah. us through that mindset a little bit? Yeah, and, and that's Jeremy Maxfield, the co-author of the book. That that uh, chart was one of his brain children and I'm thankful for it. He's really, really good at that sort of thing. But basically, you're trying to ask the question, is this essential to, to my job? Am I the only person who can do this, right? And if I'm the only person that can do this, okay, then I'm the one who's got to do it. But I'm just telling you, using that chart is going to help you arrive at the conclusion that there is very, very little that is exclusively your responsibility. And so that chart, what it is, it's, all, it's, it's just a mechanism to force you to process through all of the things you do on a regular basis. And it's basically asking the question, am I the only one that can do this? Uh, do I need to do this in partnership with somebody else? Or can I hand this off to somebody else? I mean, certainly teach them how to do it, but can I hand this off to somebody else to do? I would say the average person at a normative sized church. Let's, let's ask the question, what are some things that exclusively they can do? Is preaching on that list? 
I don't think so. How about sermon prep? Is sermon prep on that list? I don't think so. Hospital visitation? I don't think so. Budget preparation? I don't think so. Prayer? I don't think so. My point is, there's, there's almost nothing that is exclusively your responsibility. At my church, we do sermon prep in community. We have a group of us that meets together every week. Now, it's a little harder right now because of the pandemic around us and our inability to be in together. But historically, I mean, we, we get together every week and we walk through, here's the text and here's the main point of the text and here's how we apply it. And here's illustrations. I've shared this idea with others. And I'll tell you one of the cool things I've seen happen with a bunch of normative sized pastors is they've begun to get together with two or three or four other normative sized pastors in the same area and preach through the same sermon series together. They're not borrowing from somebody else. They're just planning together and say, okay, we're all going to preach through Mark at the same time. And every week they're getting together and they're doing their sermon planning in community. And they'll maybe even bring a couple of uh, lay people in the process with them. And then they'll go back to their own churches and they're preaching their own sermons and they're using their own sermon illustrations. But they're, they're trying to avoid the isolation environment, right? The isolated environment where they do everything exclusively on their own. One last question I would throw is just what out of this do you think applies in what guys can do right now in the midst of the pandemic and with the difficulties of isolation in the sense that we don't need to lead from isolation, yet we're literally physically isolated. First of all, let me say something I meant to say earlier. If you decide, hey, I want to begin to shift toward this understanding of the New Testament church, which I hope you do, don't just throw everything out and run towards this. You're going to get fired if you do that, right? And so I, just don't, don't, don't do that. Leadership generally in the established <laughs> church, and y'all, I mean, I lead the established church podcast with my buddy Sam and Josh. I've pastored a senior pastor three churches. The church I'm pastoring now will be 92 years old this year, and it's the youngest church I've ever pastored, right? I love old churches. But leadership in established churches almost always happens by fractions and degrees, right? It's applying fractional or degree-by-degree leadership over an extended period of time that leads to healthy churches. Unless the church is about to shut the doors dead, you generally don't have permission to come in and just ransack the model. So I want to caution you. Think in terms of shifts of degrees or fractional shifts, okay? So there's that first. Then I want to say, I think this moment, this pandemic moment, as horrible as it is, and we don't wish that it would happen and we wish that it would go away, but it is a unique opportunity for you to begin thinking through developing others. I'm going to give you one good example. I just met with our staff today and I emailed back and forth with our chairman and vice chairman of Deacons. I want us to personally make a phone call to every member and regular attender at our church. Uh, That's a lot of folks for our church, but we've taken it and broken it up between every staff member and every active deacon in our church and asked them to take X amount of names and over the next two weeks, make a phone call, uh, three to five phone calls a day for the next, you know, few weeks to make sure that every single person in our church can get a phone call. If your church is more than say 50 people, you're probably not going to be able to do that on your own. You just can't do it. I mean, if one pastor wanted to do that, you know, three phone calls a day for a week, you can do 40 40 or 45 phone calls in two weeks. But if you're beyond that, you're going to need some help. This is a great opportunity to reach out to some folks in your church and say, hey, I want to make sure that every person in our church is cared for and make sure that there's no unknown needs that we don't, that we haven't taken care of. And here's what I've found. Most of our members think that's a phenomenal idea because they're feeling the pain point right now. And they know that as pastors, we're having to think creatively about how to do ministry. There's never been a better opportunity for you to invite other people into ministry than right now. 
For one, they've got some time. Almost all of them are at home right now. Uh, number two, they're feeling the pain. And number three, they're sympathetic to you as a pastor struggling to try and figure out this new virtual reality and they want to help. Man, if I could encourage you, take advantage of this moment to begin handing away some ministry. Not that they do it and you don't, but that you all do it together as a really unique opportunity to begin to build new patterns of how you engage with your church. This has been a great episode. Appreciate having you on, Micah, and encourage everybody to go get the book and go listen to the EST podcast. Put that on your, your list of podcasts that you listen to as well. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Micah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, a resource for replanters by replanters. If you enjoyed this episode or found it to be helpful for you and your ministry, please help us get the word out by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital. 180 Digital is a team of design, development, and marketing experts that love working with churches big and small. Check out 180.church, O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T-Y.church to learn more about how 180 can help your church move forward.